yeah. Oh yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. The Yukon Huskies get one for the thumb last night as they are able to pull away for a convincing win over San Diego State in the NCAA Men's Tournament Championship game in Houston. That's national title number five. All won since 1999. They are the standard in men's college basketball. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your host, the big, bald, and beautiful one. Back inside the EVCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. I'm joined by the producer extraordinaire, a man who proved his worth on Friday, then again on yesterday. He's only been here for a few short months, but obviously he's trying to vie to get a raise this early on in his illustrious Delta Media career. The one and only Dawson Iserlo, a.k.a. D'Lo, a.k.a. Two Degrees, a.k.a. Producer Extraordinaire, a.k.a. I don't know. I haven't come up with a fourth one yet, but I will. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Hells are back. <laughs> How are you, bud? Um, just, you know, allergies are there, so we're fighting that. But other than that, we're doing well. Pushing through. My man's pushing through. we got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to talk Houston Astros with Brett Chancey, the Locked On Astros podcast. We're going to talk all things McNeese Cowboys with Jim Gazzolo from the Lake Charles American Press and the McNeese Coaches Show. And then we will be talking Pels, hopefully this week, with Ollie Cassell, Editor-in-Chief of the Bird Rights. Plus, we'll talk the latest updates on Festival International with Carly Viator. So, we got that lined up for you. That's the guest lineup. We're going to touch on Raging Cajuns baseball as well. We'll talk more about the LSU women. And them coming home as champions, hear from Kim Mulkey. That's all still on tap. But we got to start off with last night's national championship game. Hurley has transformed UConn into a national champion again. And, you know, there was a point in last night's game, Dawson, and look, credit San Diego State for making it closer in stretches, but 255 to go before halftime, the Husky fans were extremely loud inside what I believe they call NRG Stadium these days. Used to be called Reliant. They'd already built up a 16-point lead. What stood out to me and what stood out to me about UConn the entire tournament, and we talked about it weeks ago, There wasn't a team in the tournament that looked as dominant game after game more so than UConn. They just got onto the court, faced their opponent, 
outplayed them, outclassed them every single round. It is a dominant run. We're, we're, I don't feel like we're talking enough about it because they just went right through their bracket and said, okay. And they had some people that were really high on them to make it to the Final Four and to win the whole thing. Because what does UConn do very well? Inside, outside. They have two great post players that, by the way, can also dish it out back to the perimeter better than most. They have guards who can slash towards the basket. They have guys that can pull up and make jump shots. When you watch UConn play, and if you didn't watch them play during the regular season, and you only caught them during maybe the tournament, they are what we call an old-fashioned complete team. They look like team basketball. Not star basketball, team basketball. And you saw that again last night. And that's not a knock on San Diego State that they're, they don't have a team-first mentality because they do as well, and that's what helps them get all the way to the national title game. But they looked the best of any team in the tournament from start to finish. And they're champions. And last night they were pushed. Credit the Aztecs for rallying. They cut UConn's lead all the way down to five. They made a game of it. They didn't go away. So let's give credit to San Diego State for fighting. They understood this is the last game, right? They could have easily, easily just rolled over. They didn't. But what did UConn do? They responded. They responded. And then took over the game, seized control, and won easily, 76-59. to That's what great teams do. They get tested, they respond, and UConn was dominant the entire NCAA tournament. Think about that. They weren't really tested. The most they were tested was in the title game last night. And that's with them still holding a five-point lead. UConn with the win has now won five national championships in the past 24 years under three different coaches. Jim Calhoun... In 1999, 2004, 2011. Kevin Ollie did it in 2014. And now Hurley. And UConn has, once again, reaffirmed its status as one of the premier programs in college basketball. And I would say the, you could argue, the best program in the last 25 years. They're far better than Kentucky. Sorry, Big Blue. That's the truth. And they're just so good. And Hurley has built it the right way. They just did. They have so many different guys that can hurt you. The big fella last night, he's going to go down as one of the great UConn players of all time. Maybe not the Kimball Walker run from 2014 or even the Napier run. 
sorry, Walker's run in 2011, Napier's run in 2014. The big junior center, though, 17 points, 10 rebounds. He averaged 20 and 9.8 in the first five games of the tournament. He was your tournament's most outstanding player. He was great. UConn won its six NCAA tournament games by an average of 20 points per game. 20. It's the fourth largest average win margin since the field expanded to 64 teams back in 1985. That was even before Dawson was born. Of course, tops on that list is the 1996 Kentucky team. 20 points. Just march through. It is absolutely phenomenal. And credit the Big East. UConn played 17 games against teams outside of their own conference. They won all 17 games by double figures for the season. Seventeen games against non-Big East competition this season, and they beat them all by double figures. Unbelievable! It's an unbelievable run by UConn, and they were the best team all tournament, and the best team won the national championship. Yeah, it wasn't close, right? In that regard, um, you know, and and you can't help but wonder if anybody in this tournament would have had anything for them at the end, like even the one seeds, you know, and I just now, I don't think I'm not disappointed by that. The fact that they didn't play, you know, those teams at the end, because again, those teams didn't earn their right to play in the championship, but you do like, I don't even know if, if a team like Kansas or a team like Alabama would have anything for UConn right now, the way they're playing. Um, and even last night, they actually went through a, kind of a cold stretch. And, you know, you saw Hurley say it at the half. They could have been up 20, 25 points at the half. But they missed a few layups and a couple of open looks. And they were still that dominant. Like, they just, I mean, I didn't think San Diego State played poorly, especially in that second half run. They really were doing everything they could offensively. It didn't matter. The second half run was key. But in the first half, UConn's defense also played its role. Yeah, right, it was just swarming, uh, and and the two big fellas, their size and length. We talked about how big they were down low, but they also had very good perimeter play. They had the great inside outside game. Well, San Diego State had everything contested, right? Or, or early on, they missed all five of their layup attempts in the first twenty minutes. Like they they couldn't get a layup because UConn's defense was just that good. And if you look back, you go into deeper into the stats. San Diego State was 1-for-11 on contested paint shots in the first half last night. In their first five games of the NCAA tournament, the Aztecs shot nearly 50% on contested shots of the paint. But they hadn't faced anyone that, with that length. They just hadn't. And UConn knows it's a physical type of game that a lot of those other teams, a lot of those higher seeds, don't really possess. I know the game has evolved to three-point shooting, I get that, and UConn can shoot the three as well. But UConn has two really big guys down low that are physical, that rebound, and that take away the easy buckets. How many of those other teams, those higher-seeded teams, can score when you don't have easy buckets? 
Yeah, you know, and the funny thing is, like, Bama has length. But San Diego State was not bothered nearly as much by Bama's length as they were by no. UConn's. And, and I think that has to do with maybe the physical nature of play with UConn, uh, where Bama was a little bit more of a finesse-style team. But even the seven-footer inside, I mean, the interesting thing, too, is, and I talked about this yesterday, San Diego State doesn't get a lot of scoring from their forwards. They're really a guard-oriented scoring Correct. team. And so it's almost interesting that they were able to get this far because what UConn did was say... Just beat us out there. If if you're that good with the with your guards, beat us out there. And they just couldn't in the first half. Now they got, like I said, they got into a rhythm in that second half, and they hit those. They love taking those little mid range long twos. The analytics must hate San Diego State. Must hate how many long twos they take. But they were knocking them down, and it got them back in the game. And then they got a couple of steals, got out in the transition, and had some buckets. And that's where it felt like it could turn. But again, UConn was just so dominant in the first half, they had fallen too far behind. And and while San Diego State was able to come back against Florida Atlantic and others. Uh, a team like that, with you know the way UConn can kind of slow you down if they want to, that you just you just fell too far behind in, in that first half, and then you know even if San Diego State had drawn back, even in this game, you just like UConn's ability to close it out at the end. Just felt like a team that that was not ever intimidated by the moment in this entire tournament, and like you know, cause, and the thing is, it's not like these guys have made deep runs. This isn't a team that was no. in the Final Four a year ago and just was close, like. You know, they've had good teams, but they just, I mean, they just turned into a different team. I remember they lost in the Big East tournament, you know, to Marquette, and it wasn't like they were playing their best basketball of the season. Now, they were playing much better. That early lull in Big East play where I sat there, because again, I, I have followed this team a little bit because of my friend who graduated from there, and he was like, no, look, when they're on, they're the best team in the country. And I kept Correct. going, you sure about that? And he was like, I'm telling you, I've seen this team play for stretches where they're the best team in the country. And he was right, and that kind of reared itself in the tournament. They just they got back to what they were doing at that early point in the season, and nobody could beat them. And the job Hurley's done there, because he took over a program mired in controversy, right, with the departure of their former coach. They were in a different conference at that time. Remember, they were still in the uh, American Athletic Conference. When he took over them that first season, they were a below 500 team that ha- had – and into their season where they just kind of faded away. And Hurley famously had the big press conference said, people better get us now, that's all. You better get us now because it's coming. And people are like, oh, well, he's just, you know, fired up and talking. Well, three you know, years later. You know, Hurley's got a little Will Wade in him. Did you did you get that from from his press conferences throughout this tournament? I feel like he's got a little Will Wade to his, uh, to his personality. He's got a little bit of an edge to him. But, but, but to be fair, he and his brother both do. And his brother played with that edge at Duke, and their father was kind of that way as well. You know, they're East Coast guys that got a bit of an edge to them. And that that's perfect at UConn, by the way. I mean, that's that that's perfect for what they do there. And and look, here's the interesting thing. Four years ago, there's not a single player that was on the roster then that's on the roster now. He came in, he cleaned house. He said, Okay. He cleaned house. He brought in his guys, brought in some right transfers and freshmen, went from the American back to the Big East, zero NCAA tournament wins since 2016, and now they're the national champs. What a what a what a job Hurley's done there at UConn, as they are now national champions for the fifth time since 1999. And that achievement 
Well, that's kind of inspired our poll question of the day. We'll unveil that coming up here on RP3 and Company after this timeout. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. UConn's your national champion in men's college basketball, their fifth title since 1999. Does that make them one of the best programs in the country? Yes. Does that make them what they like to call a blue blood? And I'd say they are the modern blue blood. And you look at the list of teams, there's six, even though one of them has red in their color. But traditionally, for the longest time, for decades, for the majority of my life, there have been six teams that have been considered the blue bloods of men's college basketball. It's Kentucky, it's Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, UCLA, and the sixth one has always been Indiana. Now, we won't even bother to talk about the Hoosiers, who are a shell of themselves, they are nowhere near being a blue blood anymore. And I would argue that they have no business even being not only considered a blue blood, but not even considered one of that second tier. The second tier, which holds Villanova, Michigan State, Louisville, Syracuse, and always been UConn. When people talk about the blue bloods, when they talk about the best college basketball programs in the country year in, year out, UConn, for whatever reason, is never put in the same category. The UConn Huskies, though, are the best program in men's college basketball over the course of the last 25 years. And that includes having the last three to four years be down. They've won five national titles since 1999. You know how many Kentuckys won since 1999? One. One. They've won more national titles then Kentucky, then Duke, then North Carolina, then Kansas, then Villanova. The only one that comes close to being as consistently great as them is the Tar Heels, who've won three titles in that span and has finished as runner-up twice. But UConn hasn't finished as runner-up. When they get to the tournament, they make a run, they win the whole thing. They are the new blue blood. That's where they're at. And look, look at the other programs. UConn has been the best team in the country for the past 25 years. They may not have the most lottery picks like Kentucky or even Duke. But overall, they are the standard. Six Final four appearances, four national titles, eight appearances in the Elite Eight. That's what they've done. And that includes a lull in the program the last four years before this year. Think about that. Take four years away, and they're still 
the best program in men's college basketball. Kentucky, the bluest of all blue bloods, has one national title and only four Final Fours. North Carolina has the three titles, finishes runner-up twice, does have seven Final Fours. Kansas, two titles, two runner-ups, six trips to the Final Four. And Duke has won three titles, one runner-up finish, six trips to the Final Four as well. UCLA, who, by the way, back in the day, John Wooden, a lot of those championships did not come against a massive field, by the way. Didn't have to worry about those early upsets. Different error. Same thing with a lot of Kentucky's titles back in the day. But we have to change our perception of what UConn is. For whatever reason, we've kept them on that second tier with Michigan State and Villanova and Syracuse. When in reality, they're on the same level as Duke, North Carolina, Kansas. They're better than UCLA. They're better than Indiana. They're better than Kentucky. So we have to change our perception of what UConn is. We have to change our perception of what a blue blood is. Having, you know, you want to go further back. Well, RP3, Kentucky won all these titles back in the day. UCLA won. Yeah, that's great. That was 40, 50, 60 years ago. Who has been the bluest of blue bloods, the most consistent championship winning Final Four going to program in the last 25 years? It's one answer. It's UConn. There it is. Um, yeah, so I I disagreed going into the week. This one changes them. It changes the perception of them. This is a big kind of like title on the mantle. Uh, the thing that that I do still think Blue Blood is like a it's a more historical about the programs and their history. But now you're ha- you do have a 25 year sample size, so I am willing to hear it out. The only the only argument I would make is that they haven't been consistently great because they did have down years in which teams like. Kansas now, UNC is maybe going through it right now, but like Kansas and Duke um, and Kentucky, even when those programs have been down, they're still making the NCAA tournament and making runs in it, whereas UConn went down and kind of disappeared for four or five years. But they had a lot of transition. Kentucky doesn't always make runs as they've... Okay, well, I I get that, but they're not missing tournaments. But UConn did have a lot of... North missed the tournament this year. UConn had a lot of of conference turnover there with with the entire... Now, the other thing to think about this is... You take a look back at the administration, and I kind of was following that situation somewhat closely, you know, being in the New Orleans area with Tulane in the American Conference, is that UConn made a commitment to basketball about, you know, five, six years ago when the American, when they were in the American, which wasn't a bad basketball conference, but their football program was kind of in the toilet at the time, and there was a decision to be made about staying in the American and trying to make football work or going back to the Big East and making basketball work again and just committing to basketball and they kind of, without saying it out plain and clear, said, we're a basketball school, and we're going to play independent football, and whatever happens with football will happen, but we're a basketball school. And, I mean, there was talks that the football program would disband. Now, they've kind of pulled themselves out of that for now, and they're playing okay football at the independent level, but they committed to basketball and said, we're going back to the Big East where we belong, and you have to sit there now and say they made the right call for their program. They didn't chase, they made a decision not to, uh, they made a decision to stop chasing the money. 
Which is, is so rare in today Correct. with the way the money is in football. Now, not to say there's not money in men's college basketball. There is, but you see most programs build around football and then figure out the rest later, um, whereas you see the occasional school. And, you know, the funny thing is the Blue Bloods are kind of the ones that do it the other way around. The Kansases and the Dukes mm-hmm. and the Yukons. And, you know, maybe not UNC quite as much, but those other schools say we're going to worry about basketball and then football is going to happen as well. And we'll see what happens with our football programs. Hence, Kansas and Dukes struggles for the last however long in football. So that, I think that's an interesting way to look at the Blue Blood situation as well. Also, my overarching big number one market down take about the whole situation, I'm just very satisfied we can get Indiana out because they're not blue and UConn is blue. So we now have double entendre, which I am a fan of. Indiana has absolutely cratered as a program. They have one national runner-up finish and one final four on the resume during the last 25 years and that dates back and, and that occurred in 2002 like they're ju- they're just not relevant anymore they're just not indiana is isn't so uh, if we could choose uh i think we could easily take indiana out of that equation and put UConn up there and and look UCLA is another one you're, you're never going to take them out of the mix because of all the history they have but UCLA feels very much like they are what Notre Dame is to college football UCLA is the college basketball you're going to have they're going to have good teams that are going to be in the mix they had that nice run where they went to I think it was three straight final fours in the 2000s, right? They had that nice run, and you're like, hey, the Bruins are back. But they played for a national title, and but they've made four trips to the Final Four. That's it. Well, once again, is that that's we're not knocking UCLA here. It's just they're not quite Notre Dame. But in like a historical perspective, we think of great college basketball programs. You think of UCLA. When you think of great college football programs, historically, you think of Notre Dame. And both of those programs in their own right have played for a national championship in the last 20 years. And they always have good seasons and they're talked about a lot. But they're not the best of the best. Well, and now the, the puzzle will get interesting as they go to the Big Ten in what's one of the most horrible <sighs> moves in the history of college athletics. But now... Which, but I can't even. I mean, the what Pac-12 basketball is, and and all the West Coast, and you know Bill Walton, and like everything that is West Coast basketball, and now you're going to take USC and UCLA and put them in the Big Ten. It's a travesty. But like Texas and Oklahoma leaving to come be part of the SEC. That's and nowhere in the near of as that's nowhere near as bad as putting teams in California in you know. No, I'm I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, no, it, I got it's, you. It's going to but be. It will be interesting to see how UCLA's trajectory of their program changes now as they begin to somehow try to figure out how to play in the Big Ten with their style of play. It's so a that'll totally be different style of play. But Almost. in the transfer portal, you can kind of change your style in 10 minutes. So, <laughs> it, Yes, <laughs> that's exactly correct. That leads us to our poll question of the day here on RP3 and Company. It's all about the Blue Bloods. Is UConn a blue blood in men's basketball? Yes, no, or our 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 good our our favorite here? What's a blue blood? 
<laughs> right now, 70% say yes, 30% say no. No votes yet for what's a blue blood, but I expect that to change. <laughs> we'll share your thoughts throughout today's show. Just make sure you leave them on Facebook and Twitter and just make sure you keep it clean for the kids. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll talk more about the LSU women's basketball team, national champions. They came back home yesterday to a hero's welcome. We'll talk about that. We'll also take your phone calls. Game hotline is open, 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. You're listening to RP3 and Company right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. With about a minute and 30 to go, I couldn't hold it. Got very emotional. That's really not like me until that final buzzer goes off, but I knew we were going to hold on and win this game. And I don't know if it's the mere fact that we are doing this in my second year back home. I don't know if it was the fact that I am home. I don't know if it was looking across there at my daughter and my grandchildren. I don't know if it was looking across at Ellis. I don't know what it was, but I lost it. So that should tell you what I think about it. Very, very emotional and tears of joy Kim Mulkey that was afterwards Sunday night inside the American Airlines Center following her team's national championship win it's such a fascinating thing what she's been able to do Dawson in quick time I talked about it with you yesterday when I hopped on the show about I don't believe there's a coach that has better navigated the NCAA transfer portal when it comes to women's basketball or men's basketball better than she has. And and think about what she was able to do. She's able to go into the portal, convince all these stars. Angel Reese was a freshman All-American at Maryland. It's not as if she was a backup that wanted an opportunity to come play. She was a starter, a freshman All-American at Maryland, who went to the NCAA tournament. By the way, Maryland made it to the Elite Eight this year. Once again, a good program. She got Porter from Ohio State, who left as a starter. Porter helped Ohio State beat LSU last year in the second round of the tournament. This is a girl who was part of a Sweet 16 team. And she got all these other players to leave their programs, come play for her for one year. Not in the case of Angel Reese. She'll be here for a couple years. But to leave their programs, to come be part of what she's trying to build at LSU, the only player she had from last year's team was Alexis Morris, who was a transfer two years ago. And she got all these girls to buy into what she wanted to do. She got all these girls to put their egos aside. 
She got all these girls to fight hard for her. And they win the national title in year number two. Just name me a better coach, especially a veteran coach that adapted to the times on the fly and has mastered the NCAA transfer portal better than Kim Mulkey. I don't think he can. I don't think it's possible. Dawson's trying to think of an answer right now. He can't. Unable to do so. Yeah, no. I did see, I will say this. Um, I don't know. I just I just had a little bit of a problem with it. I saw some conversation about her being the greatest women's basketball coach of all time, and I just don't think we're anywhere near that yet. I mean, she would have to win a lot more to be in that conversation for me. Gino and Pat are, are kind of alone in that top of that conversation, and I think four titles. I understand the difficulty of doing it two different places, and that hadn't been done, but that's where <laughs> I would take a step back on what I had been hearing this week. Um, I just don't think you can be, I mean, I don't know if people, and I guess it's, it's recency bias, but like, I don't know if people remember what UConn did about, you know, five to seven years ago. Um, <laughs> it wasn't it, that long. Ago. Right. It wasn't like it was in the forties. I mean, we, you know, we had colorized photography and stuff when it was going on, but that's the one thing I would t- take a step back on. But to your point, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. She's adjust, adapted and adjusted as well as anyone. And we've seen. We've seen some coaches really fail to do so, and we've already kind of talked a little bit about that. Think about Jim Beheim at Syracuse, like how that kind of just turned up, up on its head in a hurry. And, um, you know, Florida State's going through it right now, a uh, program that I follow. They're, they're just, you know, they're just struggling with it. So, like, there's a lot of places that haven't adapted. She she never flinched in that era. So that that's something that, um, you know, even Coach K, I'd say adapted to it, but, um, you know, it, it felt like, he wasn't ever fully comfortable with it, right? Where it, it doesn't feel like that's the case for Mulkey. And it took a, a, a while for Coach K, back to your the point, to adapt to the the one and done that Cal embraced early on at Kentucky and was kind of, you know, oh my God, I can't believe he's doing that to college basketball. And then, you know, Kansas and Duke ended up winning titles with that method as well. So it, it, you have to make the adjustment. Is she the greatest it, it's still Summit and Geno for me on the women's side. Now, if Kim maybe wins another one and she gets to the five, I think you start having conversation her being on the Mount Rushmore of women's college basketball. I think you can make the argument that she may be the state's most accomplished basketball figure. You know, four state championships in high school, two national titles as a player at Tech, went to four straight Final Fours, was an assistant coach for seven Final Fours, won another national title as a head coach, has now won four national titles as a head coach and done so at two different places. That's seven national titles on the resume is either a player or as coach and she became the first NCAA women's player ever to or uh, first person ever to win a national title as a player assistant coach and a head coach as well she's the only one that has that so there she can be part of the arguments I, I don't think she's the greatest of all time right now I still think that's Gino and Pat respectively 
But if Kim can put together something here where she constantly has LSU in contention for the next five years and they win a couple more titles, and she's been able to do this at two different programs, then that's a different conversation, especially her adapting to the new era of NIL and the NCAA transfer portal. That's a different conversation. You know, and and also think about, I'm sure we're going to have more conversations about kind of the women's game in general and the growth of, of women's college basketball. And think about what you have next year. You're going to have LSU be back with, you know, just as much talent or maybe more so. You're going to have UConn get Paige Buchers back. And they were already pretty good this year as well. And we're missing some think the best or maybe second best player in college basketball. Iowa's going to have Caitlin Clark back. South Carolina will reload because and South Don Carolina Staley was is... the best team in the country this year that had one bad game against Iowa. So you got those four teams there. If I, th- there's my early Final Four for next year, by the way. And you're if still going to have fill out a bracket. On, by the way, uh, you'll April still 4th. have Maryland. You'll still have Stanford, Notre Dame, Mississippi State. I mean, I, yeah. I think Vatek is going to be good again next year. Uh, look, the state of women's basketball is better than what it's ever been, and the ratings show you that record-setting ratings. What was the latest on the national title game? What was the big deal for the national title game that that caused such a tizzy? That 9.9 million viewers, it was a record-breaking national title game between LSU and Iowa, most viewed NCAA women's basketball game on record, up 103%. (laughs) It peaked at 12.6 million during the game. And it's the most viewed college event ever on the ESPN Plus format. Platform, rather. They have personalities. They have dynamic players. And people are tuning in. we got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up our number one update that poll question of the day. That's all coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to The Game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day, is UConn a blue blood in men's basketball? They won their fifth national title last night when they took down San Diego State. They're in Houston. That's five national titles altogether and all since 1999. You can make the argument they are the modern blue blood. You go ahead and just move Indiana out of that slot because I I don't think they're – blue or even purple blood anymore but is UConn a blue blood in men's college basketball that's our poll question of the day 68 percent of you say yes 32 percent say no no votes yet for what's a blue blood Ralph on the Twitter says they had lobster and caviar with shaved truffles for their pregame meal so probably blue bloods sure they're taking the team yacht to Martha's Vineyard for for quite a celebration and he shared a gif of the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, which I am appreciative of on so many levels. Darren says, five since 1999. 
Ton says, we're obsessed with Blue Bloods, but the landscape has changed. Transfer portal has allowed teams to go further and win more. Good players are leaving Blue Blood programs to play at upstarts and finding even greater success. He also said, UConn deserved to win, but let's not pretend Blue Blood status matters anymore except for ratings. And if networks would show good games instead of Blue Blood games, their ratings would go up even more, though. It would take a while. However, people would see quality and tune in. My my only rebuttal to that would be a lot of the Blue Bloods do play good games. Like, people tune in for North Carolina Duke even when Duke and North Carolina aren't great. Right? People tune in to Kansas even when they're not great because they're a brand. It, 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 uh, some of us may go, well, they're not very good this year. Why are we watching them? But they're a brand. And that's what it boils down to. And brands make people watch thus more money for advertising revenue that's kind of that's how it works you know i i didn't have a problem with san diego state and yukon being the matchup i had no issues with that i had one huge enormous problem with last night's game do you know what that is i have no idea because we haven't discussed it yet it tipped off at 9 20 eastern oh. 8 20 central what are we doing why with that? why i the have women's no national idea. championship game tipped off at 2 30 and it had record ratings on a Sunday. I, I get it. It's a Monday night and you want to wait. But why aren't we tipping off at 7 o'clock? 7 o'clock Central. 8 Se- o'clock Eastern. I, why, I don't understand. Why, why, why are we not tipping off until 8.20? If you want to do the seven seventeen, that's fine with me too. We can do that. It's but just, we're going to end uh, a basketball game at, at on the East Coast. Probably ended at what? Midnight? Like what? What's the point of that? They, they make poor decisions. Steve, Salty Steve, says, who's currently done more than them in this millennium? John Paul says, I don't think that such a thing exists. Every year teams are good and teams are not as good and other teams are bad as a condition that will be in constant flux. Is there something to that? Because UConn has been down for multiple years, right? Could be something to that. JPK, the OD, says, yes, 100%. UConn, Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, Indiana, UCLA, Villanova, and even Georgetown. More importantly, random Pelicans gift below. Oh, of Charlie Brown missing the football because Lucy pulls it away. I say Georgetown's no longer that. Georgetown was one of the best programs in the 1980s and a little bit in the 90s, but they've fallen off even more so than Indiana. Keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll update it and share it throughout today's show. Hour one in the books. Hour number two, we'll kick it off with Brett Chancy of Locked On Astros. That's next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Seven oh three on this Tuesday morning, first hour in the books, recapping the national championship game as UConn wins its fifth national title since nineteen ninety nine as they defeat San Diego State. We also touched on a little bit about Kim Mulkey and the LSU Tigers as well. 
Poll question of the day, is UConn a blue blood when it comes to men's basketball? We want to hear from you, yes, no, or you also have the option, what's a blue blood? You can leave your comments, your thoughts, if you will, on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids, and we'll share those throughout the remainder of today's RP3 and company. We are broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette, and Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. I'm joined inside those studios, of course, by the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlow. And right now, it's time for us to welcome on our first guest of today's show. He covers the Houston Astros for the Locked on Astros podcast. He's also a contributing columnist to 1037thegame.com. Our good friend, Brett Chancey, joins us now. Brett, good morning to you, bud. How are you? Doing good. You know, it's it's been a... Been an interesting start to this Astros season, but uh, let's hope they get things figured out these next these next couple games and get a series win. Well, let's start there. They're always a slow starter, and to usually every season, and this season is no different so far. Early through five games, what stood out to you with these first five games as they've gone two and three and have lost back to back games? Well, I guess it's the way they they are losing. It, it's not necessarily that they're losing this early, like you said, but they're start. They've done some things early on that they didn't do last year. Their their starters have not gone, have not had any quality starts. They've taxed their bullpen early, and forgetting about the offense right now. But that is what really made this team so great in 2022 was your starters would go the length, your relievers would come in, they would do phenomenal, and everything else worked itself out. And without Justin Verlander, without Lance McCullers, you know, you knew there would be some drop-off, but you would think that you would have at least a quality start or two possibly in the first few games, and that hasn't happened. So that's something that I'm not necessarily – think is is concerning but it's something you need to keep an eye on because 2023 i knew was not going to be like 2022 but you hope that that turns around a little bit because you can't tax your bullpen this early in the season and expect that to be sustainable for a long period of time it's it's also early in the season so once again it's a very, very, very small sample size. It's only five games. And you're right. You don't want to test the bullpen as much, and you'd like to see the starting pitching. But, you know, maybe it takes a little while for these guys to get warmed up, so to speak. Do you still have the utmost confidence that the rotation can kind of get its act together? Well, yeah, and that's the thing. I think I think what you have here is um, just – just take Hunter Brown, for instance, last night. Hunter Brown didn't have a terrible game last night. He wasn't dominant. But the Hunter Brown we saw last year on the field was a Hunter Brown that had worked through his stuff and control issues all in the minor leagues, and then he came up to the big leagues, and he was just firing bullets, throwing fire. And his his velocity is not a problem. I mean, there's not anything ultra-concerning about that. I'm just – I guess my point is you don't want this to become something 
that continues to fester because what sustained them was the reason why your bullpen was so elite is because they weren't used so much. So we're not writing off the Astros this early. Of course, you got Rangers fans crowning them as champs already in the AL West. The Astros aren't a 500 or below team. Those things are going to work themselves out. So I do have confidence that this rotation will figure it out. You also have guys that pitch in the World Baseball Classic. They didn't get to get stretched out as, as they normally would. So even though they're losing, it's not like the pitchers are getting just blown up on the mound. No, they're they're not getting tagged. It's not like watching batting practice, a glorified batting practice, or uh, w- what I saw in uh, Arlington over the weekend when I caught the uh, uh, Phillies get absolutely trucked by the Rangers uh, <laughs> there in in the in the uh, ballpark that's basically Minute Maid ballpark inside of Costco. But I digress. What about the lineup? What stood out to you, both good and bad, so far through the first five games? Well, hey, you know, Alex Bregman woke up. He is typically a slow starter, and three for five last night was great. You have Abreu that has a um, now a six-game hitting streak, I believe, um, and Jordan Alvarez. Jordan Alvarez is the catalyst, the spark plug, and the weight behind this offense right now, especially with missing Altuve and Brantley. They, you know, they've been – They've been scoring runs, but they've been hitting a lot of singles. They haven't been really hitting that long ball. But you, you've you got an offense that still has great potential. I think the six runs and nine hit games like they had last night, you're going to start seeing them win those. They're not going to lose those. But I like what I see out of those that I mentioned. Um, Jeremy Pena's not been great in the leadoff. He hasn't been terrible. Um, Chaz McCormick has given the fans what they want and makes people wonder why do they start Myers over McCormick. And then you've got the bottom of your lineup, really, for the most part, which seems to be not a sure out, but definitely the weakest part of this team is your bottom three or four hitters. We're talking with Brett Chancey of the Locked On Astros podcast. He joins us here on RP3 and Company as we talk all things Stros. The problems that the Astros are having right now with not getting the extra base hits like they should and, and not getting a lot of the power that we thought they would have early on and the pitching being a little sluggish, uh, you can make the argument that you're seeing a lot of that across Major League Baseball altogether, that it's just the early season slump for most teams, Correct. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that, like, gosh, the AL West, everybody, I think, yesterday was like two and two, right? And, and, and we're talking about the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. I mean, um, the teams that you have up top are not necessarily going to be the teams that are going to be there in the end. But let me tell you, like, with the Rangers, I, I'm not saying they're going to compete for the AL West, but if their offense performs the way they can perform, they can be competitive in this AOS division. And so what you have to do is you have to sit back, you have to be patient. You have to realize it is a it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Look, we get Brantley back here in a couple weeks, um, and then I guess a month and a half maybe after that, a month after that, you get Altuve back. 
can you imagine when you got Brantley, Abreu, and both in this lineup? Kyle Tucker, I think, is going to continue to get better and better. And you're going to see a lot of action. I mean, the stolen bases are through the roof now. Um, and it will take care of itself. I think I, I think the Astros are fine, but the league across the board, it, it has been a lot more even to play. No one's really separating themselves from the from the rest of of the group in their division. I think it's going to be a dogfight in the division as well. Your idea about the other teams in the division, like the Rangers in Seattle, being better pushing uh, the Astros, especially early on, that hasn't changed either, has it? No, it has not. Now, you know, I I really think the the big dog in the group that's really going to give us the most fight are the Mariners. But the Rangers, see, the Rangers don't listen to what we say or what beat writers write or what the paper says about them not competing for a division title because they absolutely are going out there and if their pitching stays healthy, if their starters stay healthy, they've got some studs on the mound and they've got a solid offense. It's just my thing is what I know about the Astros and the character of this team is we have something that's more sustainable over a full season versus what the Rangers have. Um, the Angels, I don't know. I mean, are they going to compete? I, I would like to think they would, but if they if they don't, then it's, then it's the Astros, the Mariners, and the Rangers. But I would still put the Angels above the Rangers at this point. We just have to see because it seems like Trout and Otani – they just don't really have enough. And, um, you know, when you got your stars getting suspended for, for taking swings at fans off the field, that can't be a good sign early on for the Angels. Give me your thoughts now that we're nearly a, a weekend or will be a weekend here. Just on the season as a whole early on with the pitch clock changes and everything like that, have you noticed a big difference? You know, I have. It. It appears to me that pitchers are rushed, that hitters are getting frustrated. I think there's been over 40 pitch clock violations to start the season. Um, I, I think for the average fan, I think the take is, yeah, we don't like it, it's here. I think overall Major League Baseball has got to make an adjustment at some point. I, I just think it's too short. I think you – up the chances of pitchers possibly getting injured or just people not being ready um, while pitchers, you know, while pitches hit batter. But it's just an adjustment. These are pros, and they're going to have to make the adjustment um, on the season because Major League Baseball is not going to take it away. Um, but it definitely has changed the game. I mean, we've had a two-hour and two-minute game with, I believe, the Guardians and the Mariners earlier this week. But I think one of the shortest games – in the major leagues ever. So it's doing what they want it to do, but I kind of miss the longer games. And I, I know I'm, you know, I'm playing with snakes when I say that, but maybe we just need to extend this pitch clock more. Maybe we need to give them a few more seconds and, and the rules on calling balks or the rules on calling a ball or a strike it seems to be different for every game because it almost seems like it's that particular umpire's call and there's not enough consistency for me right now and maybe that'll work itself out in the end. 
And once again, it's still early, obviously, in the season and plenty of time to kind of get a better handle on things. Wrap it up with this, brother. What do we expect or what do you expect or hope to see from the Astros this week and this weekend? Well, I, I really think right now because they've got the, they've got the next two games against Detroit and they go and they play the Twins, I think they figure things out these next couple games with um, with a day game here in Houston on Wednesday and then, you know, this evening's game with both Valdez and Javier on the mound. If Javier and Valdez can go the distance, they can go six or seven innings, they can save that bullpen, then I think they can go on the road and they can catch a hot streak. But um, if you're going up to Minnesota, it's going to be cold. So I don't know how that's going to affect them, and they're not playing bad baseball right now. So I don't know. I, I think they get the next two. Um, they can go up and get a, get a series win in Minnesota, but it's not going to be easy because Carlos Correa, or C4 as he calls himself now, is ready, and Joey Gallo's hitting the ball. Um, is Joey Gallo stealing signs, or has he figured out his swing? So um baseball is a wild sport that's why you don't judge a team on one week right that's exactly it's all 162 games for a reason brother brett appreciate your time as always bud keep up the tremendous work that you're doing with locked on astros podcast and we'll talk to you soon talk to you next week bud yeah thank you in louisiana make sure y'all check us out on youtube apple google or spotify or wherever you get your podcast remember we are your team every day go strokes this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go. Oh, the game hotline's open, 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. You want to talk about last night's national championship game for the NCAA men's tournament as UConn won its fifth title since 1999. You want to talk more about the LSU women winning LSU's first national championship in basketball, both men or women. Or you want to talk a little bit about the Houston Astros coming out the gate a little sluggish starting off the season two and three. But once again, Astro fan, it is a 162-game season. 162. Still plenty, plenty, plenty of time to get things together. Dawson, are you getting things together? How are you doing over there, bud? Let's check in with you. You know, I've been talking with Brett Chancey, and I've been rambling on about other things and I haven't had the time to really dive in on how you're doing and how'd you do with out yours truly being inside the FCO development studios for a couple of days yeah uh it went okay it went well um today's more of a struggle for some reason not so sure so why. I returned so here we go so it was okay while I was not here I didn't say that that was the reason it was okay, but you you took you uh, you took that from it. But I can't control what you take from my statements. But no, um, I think I think it more has to do with the allergies, and you know, 
I have this real problem during allergy season because then it's like if I take allergy medicine, then I'm tired, and if I don't, then I sneeze. So it's just, you know, these days are tough, but I got to get maybe some long-term help for my allergies. But other than that, I'm fine. You know, they make medicine for that. No, I know, and, and again, I, I need to get, like, an allergy test done soon to kind of, like, really figure out. It's been a long-time thing, but, um, you know, forgot to do uh, forgot to take the medicine this morning, so I'm just dealing with it. Man forgot to take his medicine. It's feeling a little sluggish. You're kind of like the Astros. You're a little sluggish. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but uh, you know when if I can finish the way the Astros finish, I'll be fine. That, that, that's really all that matters. Uh, look, I love baseball, and I get fired up about my team, and you know, day in day out, and I get you know fired up when they lose a game that they shouldn't. I get all that. I, I really do. That being said, don't forget, it's 162 games. <laughs> like, my Braves have started off really well. They're 3-1. and one. But it's four games into the season. I'm not ready to, you know, buy my championship merch yet. Because, you know, the Mets are 3-2. and two. I mean, you just look at the early standings. Cincinnati's 3-1. and one. The Reds are three and one. Don't let that group get hot. Who, by the way, Ken Griffey Jr. is still top five on their payroll for this season. Let that wash over you. <laughs> Just saying. Just, uh, it's easy. There are some teams that are a little surprising. I'm surprised. Once again, it's only a handful of games. Toronto. Being one and three, Seattle being one and four. I was a little surprised by that, but once again, it's early in the season. And I think the other thing that baseball fans have to recognize, have to remember, is that not only is it early in the season, that's part of it. The other part of it is that everyone's adjusting to the new large base bases on the base paths and the pitch clock. Now I'll ask you. D to the low, a.k.a. two degrees. Have you even noticed that the bases are bigger? Because when I was inside the ballpark the other day, I didn't notice it at all. Yeah, I had my micro, I had my uh, ruler out, and I was trying to measure it up on the TV. No, I didn't notice the bases. Didn't not- I, I didn't notice at all. Now, I know it, the players have been paying attention, and you know the bases are bigger, and that's made a difference. But I, it's not overly is overly noticeable if you're inside a ballpark you just don't notice it now the pitch clock you notice because the game goes by really quick now the game I attended there in Arlington was an interesting event you and I have not talked about this first of all shout out to the group that was in front of us we got the nine dollar tickets right I don't need to spend a lot of money when I go to the ballpark Dawson you got to have money to get the hot dog. So. I have to get the money to get the hot dog. By the way, the facility is cashless, which is a frustration for your boy because I'm still old school. But they do have machines now, little kiosk inside the ballpark there at Globe Life Field where you can put money in. And it's like a reverse ATM. They shoot out a credit card for you or, you know, like a, a prepaid Visa card. And that way you can use that to buy your concessions. But I digress. So, you know, I did the whole thing. I got my dog, uh, got to watch baseball live. But the group in front of us, 
I've never understood getting so hammered at a sporting event that you slur your speech and you forget what sporting event you went to. But there was a group of, I would call them youngish people, probably in their mid-20s, maybe even pushing 30, that was having a good old time with the day drinking, because this was a day game. Slurred speech, lots of curse words, lots of bro. Bro, why are you so mad, bro? Come on, bro. You know I love you. Come on. There was a lot of that, which was pleasant. But the highlight, besides the sloppiness and the arguing and talking about their friendships publicly very loudly to everyone inside Globe Life Field, as they were two rows in front of us, was one of the gentleman's lady friends being so drunk that she took the foam finger, Dawson, and because the sun was coming up and they had the roof open, she was using it to protect herself because she didn't want to get sunburned, and then she fell asleep, (laughs) passed out with her adult beverage in hand with a foam finger on her face. But that's not the best part. So a father decided to make the fatal mistake of bringing his three boys, young children, to the game, and he bought tickets right behind them. He eventually had to relocate his family to another section because of the uh, disruption of the group in front of us. Well, one of the little boys decided that he didn't want to finish his nachos, and he left a half a thing of nachos on the concrete, you know, right there in front of his seat. Well, our group that was on the very front line there decided those nachos couldn't be wasted. They scored some free nachos. What's the problem? And they ate the, the free nachos. And I looked down, and the, the nacho cheese is all over their hands. And, and these aren't like 18, 19-year-olds. These are like, they were at least like 25, 26, 27, right? Getting just absolutely blitzed at the Rangers game and eating nachos off the ballpark floor that didn't even belong to them. It's not as if they were their nachos and then they dropped them. No, 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 no. Someone else left their nachos. And to make it even even better, I looked down and I said, I, the, the two guys I was with, I says, um, I, have, I have a question. And they're like, oh, <laughs> what's your question about this now? I go, I see the empty nacho container that she just devoured. There's a used Band-Aid on there as well. Did it come from the kid or did it come from them? Not really for sure, but that wasn't part of the thought process there. So shout out to the diehard Ranger fans. They were uh, they were classing it up Saturday afternoon there at Globe Life Field. <laughs> I was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're making poor decisions. So many poor decisions. So yeah. many. They've sat. They've sat through a couple Ranger seasons at the bottom <laughs> of the standings, and they they weren't wasting any time. They this were year. decked out in their Rangers gear, like they had their jerseys on and their shirts. The whole nine yards, bud. They they were there. They, they were ready to go. They were, they were ready to win every single game. Every single game. There were some arguments. Things got heated between a group of them. There was a lot of, hey, man, you know I love you. You know it's all love here. 
I'm just like, I, I think I was probably more entertained by them than I was the actual game, which the, the Rangers ended up beating the Phillies. I want to say it was 16 to 3. It was a football score. And that hurt my heart. No, it didn't. I'm not a Rangers fan, but I got to see the Phillies get crushed, which always makes me happy. Always. We got to take a timeout. More of our shenanigans will be coming up here on RP3 and Company. Raging Cages Baseball. They got a good midweek game on tap tonight. And then, obviously, more coming up this weekend. We'll listen from Coach Matt Deggs about how his team is right now. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Tough week for us, obviously. Uh, coming off a couple of really good weeks, had a week off, which we probably needed. Uh, got some guys injured, banged up, and uh, just didn't go as planned. App State played uh, extremely well. They pitched us extremely tough, and we just didn't adjust soon enough. We were fortunate to win a game yesterday, which does keep us on track uh, to to reach a couple of our goals as far as winning the league and uh, getting to 40 wins before the end of the regular season. So it was a good response yesterday, but just uh, not near what we were looking for. Louisiana Raging Cajun skipper Matt Deggs talking to the media yesterday about his team's weekend. They dropped the first two games to App State, and they win the third game in convincing fashion. That's always gives you a little bit of a pep in your step, so to speak, heading into the new week. But definitely disappointing. Yes, App State is good, and they've had a good season. I don't want to take anything away from App State. Because we talked about how they are having a pretty good season, and we did so last week, and they're six and three in conference play now. And, but they're fifteen and eleven overall. They're, they're not great. They're a pretty good team. If the Cajuns would have played to their potential, they would have won that series. They had an off weekend. It happens. It's baseball. It does. Anything stand out to you Dawson about what you saw from the Cajuns over the weekend that makes you go okay at what once again they had the week off they had played back-to-back weeks of five games they had the week off and only had the conference series and they had it at home and they dropped the first two games they end up winning the third but anything stand out to you um I'm not exactly sure of the math that goes along with saying they're still on pace for 40 wins in the regular season because they're not. But I guess maybe that's kind of projecting out that they think they're going to get better. Um, so that was like something funny that I kind of picked up from the press conference there because he said it uh, on foot show as well. And I was like, well, they're they're not really on pace for 40 wins. But he's saying that I guess they're still leaving the the door open for that. That would that would be impressive, honestly, if they got there. They still have. You know, several tough midweek games, including LSU, as well as playing most of the top teams in the Sunbelt Conference, uh, including Texas State and Southern Miss and um, Coastal Carolina as well. So that would certainly be lofty. I, You know, I don't, the pitching staff... They have 28 games left, by the way. Right. So they would have to go 
21 and 7 to get to 40 wins in the regular season. It's not impossible, but they got Coastal and Southern Miss right, and, and so, LSU. So Texas, there there's some tough teams on that schedule. Yeah, yeah. So the, and they're 19 and 9 right now. So that's what I was just saying. They're on pace to to not go to not get there, yeah. but they're on pace to get to like 37 or so. But I do think that the offense is going to be fine. They had a you know I wouldn't call it a bad series against App State, but the thing is that App State came in with an ERA over seven, but they pitched well. Correct. And so sometimes there's, you know, teams pitch well against you. But I think the rotation is kind of the biggest situation. Now, you know, Jake Hammond had some family stuff that Coach Dex talked about. He had to go back home to deal with something. And so, you know, he came back and pitched, and he didn't have a great outing. But you certainly give him a pass for something like that. And maybe um, that's kind of a blip on the radar. But they really kind of need him to get back to form as their Friday night guy if he's going to stay in that spot. Um, And then Neza behind him. Just a little bit of the inconsistency issues that still concern you. Um, the third spot, now Cooper Rawls has been fantastic. I, I think they like him more in that flex-type role as opposed to just throwing him in the Sunday starter role, uh, which I understand. But the big key for them kind of moving forward, I think, is Blake McGeehee. We saw McGeehee come back in relief, and he looked pretty good on Saturday, uh, or on Sunday, rather. You know, gave him a couple of innings. Kind of lost it towards the end there. Seemed like the command was maybe going away from him, but he hasn't pitched, so you will maybe expect some of that. If he's going to get back into the fold and maybe make his way back into the rotation, I think you might have a chance to really do something here. But right now, I think the concern is just not quite having enough quality arms to give you length, and that's something they've got to get better at. And look, what they do have is they have a guy that can close the door, right? And Moody's done a nice job with that. But Deggs talked about what Brendan brings to the table, how he's been pitching and the staff's pitching situation in general. You know, that's the tough part. He got up and down several times over the course of the weekend. Uh, Friday was a more likely spot. Uh, Saturday was a game that we just were not getting anything going offensively until the very end. And so that's where I've got to start looking at where we're at in this game and, and start thinking forward. Uh, so obviously didn't use him there. I would have maybe started him tomorrow had we not brought him in and had he not been up several times. You could see him in the game tomorrow, you may. Uh, but we'll start JT Etheridge tomorrow and uh, probably go with well, – not probably, we're going to go with Jake on Thursday and, and look to see how he bounces back. I haven't seen him today, McGeehee. Um, we're going to leave Nezu right where he is uh, on normal rest because he's got quite a pitch count over the last few weeks. So he's not taking it off the table that Moody will be the swing man for them. And I think he likes having that flexibility at Dawson. But when you watch Brendan go out there in relief, you, you, you see a guy that can be a legitimate closer. So... I get why he likes having the flexibility that he can use Brendan to be a closer one day and then in a midweek game, he could use him to be a starter or vice versa. And and that's going to prove valuable for the conference tournament or for a regional, right? To have that guy be able to do that. But I, I am in agreement with you. Like, the the pitching has gotten better do you believe as it stands right now, as the calendar is now turned to April, and it's April 4th, and we have 28 games left in the regular season, 
Do you believe they have a complete weekend rotation good to go? No. I mean, there's no way they have. They haven't started the same starter on Sundays. I don't know if they've done it back-to-back weekends all year. So now it sounds like McGeehee's starting Friday from what he said. He was a little confusing there, but it kind of sounded like, which I was surprised because usually college coaches like to keep their guys on their day, but they're going to move Hammond up a day because of the weird, you know, the Easter, you're, you're off Sunday, so Correct. you're playing Thursday. They're going to move Hammond up to Thursday, but said he sounded like they wanted to keep Nez on Saturday, but then he threw Blake McGeehee's name out there, so I'm assuming he's referring to the fact that McGeehee's maybe going to start on Friday. So now, once again, you're back to your original starting rotation from the first weekend of the season. Maybe a couple of guys flipped around here and there, but if that works out that's again that's the idea they had going into the season so maybe it's going to work out like that but we need mm-hmm. to see more from McGeehee because we haven't seen him you know stretch it out since he's come back so you know if if he gets back in there and he looks good and Hammond figures it out then yeah you you're looking in the right direction but right now nothing's settled and I you know you don't you'd prefer not to be figuring these things out in the middle of conference play but Especially now with the expanded conference and how many series you play, you don't really have much of a choice. There's not a whole lot of season that happens before Sunbelt play starts. It's fair. It's fair. And look, skippers are always making tweaks to their lineup or to their rotation or to the team constantly. And Deggs talked about after dropping two or three to App State, how important it was for his Raging Cajuns to start off strong this week with Tulane tonight at the Teague and then a road trip to marshal for a three-game set for the weekend. Yeah, there was yeah there was some individual performances. Obviously, Ben Tate and uh, Cooper Rawls, Blake McGee. It was good to get those guys out there. I thought Moody looked good at the end. Uh, Blake Marshall threw the ball well. I thought uh, Peyton Lejeune uh, played well yesterday. Uh, John Taylor is obviously a, a nice fill-in for for Debo while he's out. But, you know, we, we win and lose as a team. And, and uh, you know, we just – it's one of those series that you can take a couple innings back. It's probably completely different. Uh, but we just didn't get off to a great start. That's two weeks in a row. We need to get off to a really good start on Thursday. And it's important for them, especially if they're kind of, as we talked about, shifted back to what the rotation was to start the season and everything like that. Maybe Deggs has figured out – through a couple of series here, okay, what's working, what doesn't? And this is what we need to do moving forward for the rest of the season, for the last 28 games. This is going to be the best option we have. Maybe he's been tweaking it and he's done now. We'll see. We'll find out how they approach the series at Marshall over the upcoming Easter weekend. But it all begins tonight at the Teague. Of course, we'll have that matchup against Tulane for you. We'll have a recap of it. You can find that at 1037thegame.com, 1041thegame.com. After tonight's game, you can follow us on social media as well for updates throughout the game. And the Green Wave have been on the struggle bus this year. Uh, A wildly disappointing year for a very proud program. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy game by any stretch of the imagination. Deggs talked about tonight's matchup against Tulane. Yeah, you know, we saw them in the fall. And I, I like their ball club in the fall. I know they've played a tough schedule. They've been back and forth from the West Coast a lot. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not looking at records or ERAs or batting averages. I mean, if we were going to play a series based on that, then, you know, this weekend wouldn't have gone the way it did. Uh, 
teams overachieve against us, they have an opportunity, and especially in our ballpark, in front of a great crowd. Uh, a lot of times, it, it it is something where they play above and beyond their their ski tips, and that's what they should do. And, and uh, we've got to counter that by being our very best every single night. They'll get the chance to be their very best tonight there at the Teague as the Tulane Green Wave come to town. Should be a good game and a good get-back game, so to speak. Green Wave are struggling. Take advantage of it. Pick up the midweek game heading into a cross-country trip for the holiday weekend. That'd be a nice way to start things off. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll wrap up hour number two of RP3 and company right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. got a question here from our guy darren number one raging cajun fan of rp3 and company uh what if you put too much money on that card at the game and you don't spend it all the card is specifically d i asked the same question i'm glad you asked it because i talked about earlier that because a lot of places are going to cashless right and no one wants to take money anymore it all has to be digital so what happens is that you have to, you can bring your cash in, put it into the machine. They spit out a card, the whole nine yards, and you can use that card. And I used it there, but you can use it outside of the ballpark. It's not specifically just for the ballpark. So it gives you a gift card or is it just like only in the... It, think of it, think of it like a, it's, it's like a Visa gift card. It's, okay. it's, it's all it is. It's a Visa gift card. Now I'm sure they charge you for that process. Well, there was a fee. Yes. Right, yeah. It wasn't enormous. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, I needed to get a hot dog and a drink. So <laughs> I was, I was, you know, I was determined. What, what's crazy to me now is this whole certain places that don't take cash, but then certain places that still only take cash. And now it's like, I got to have a certain amount of cash, but not enough cash. And then it's just like, you know, some of these places that only take cash for parking. And it's like, only cash. And then you get in the stadium, they're like, we don't take cash at all. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I just had to pay cash, and now I can't pay cash. Just frustrating. And I was able to find parking for the Rangers game. I found a cash lot. Now, I paid more for it. But my buddies, my buddy who came down with his brother-in-law from Oklahoma, they stayed further away because they didn't want to pay as much. So they, 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 they parked in a lot that was only like 20 bucks for the game. Well... We left. I parked really close. Like, literally, there was a railroad track between I and one of the parking lots for the ballpark. So I parked there, and I paid more than 20 bucks. After the game, I was able to easily get out of my parking lot and meet at the restaurant where we went to. They were stuck in the parking lot, not moving for 20 minutes. <laughs> so sometimes you get what you pay for. 
I'm just saying. I'm just saying that's how it works. That's how it works. Poll question of the day. Is UConn a blue blood in men's basketball? 60% of you say yes. 33% right now say no. And 7% of you say, what's a blue blood? Mr. Green says at this point, what is a blue blood? Blue bloods haven't been relevant in 20 plus years. It's a new era for college basketball. I mean, Jamie's just ignoring that Duke and North Carolina and Kansas have all won national titles in the last five years. <laughs> so just, just bypass that altogether. Keep those votes coming, though. We'll continue to share your comments throughout today's RP3 and Company. Hour two in the books, but not to worry. We got a whole nother hour still to go. We'll kick it off with Jim Gazzolo of the Lake Charles American Press and the McNeese Coaches Show. That's next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. which means the final hour of this Tuesday edition of RP3 and Company has arrived. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one, your host, Raymond Parch III. Of course, I'm joined inside the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette by the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlow. We've had a good show so far, reunited inside the studios for the first time in a long time as I was in Dallas this past weekend broadcasting my show and covering the women's Final Four, a historic, record-breaking women's Final Four. We talked about that on today's show. We also talked about last night's men's national championship game. UConn defeats San Diego State to win their fifth national title since 1999. Are they now a blue blood? Should they be considered a blue blood? Indiana sure isn't one anymore, and they haven't been for 20 years. That's our poll question of the day. Yes, no, or what's a blue blood? Go vote on that and leave your comments, your thoughts, if you will, on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids. Come on, this is a family-friendly show, despite what Dawson tries to do every weekday morning from 6 to 9. Ha, 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 ha. My man. My man. How you feeling? Hour three is here with you and I doing the show together face-to-face. How do you feel? Yeah, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So we're feeling <laughs> it's good. almost over. You're almost done with me and my shenanigans. That's what that means. <laughs> Until tomorrow. Until tomorrow. Coming up half an hour from right now, Ali Cassell, the editor-in-chief of the Bird Rights, will join us to talk about the Pelicans as the regular season wraps up this week. Good Friday, they'll be at home taking on the Knicks, and then obviously they wrap up at Minnesota on Easter weekend. But right now it's time for us to talk all things McNeese Cowboys with the man who covers the athletic programs for the Lake Charles American Press. He's also the host of Poke Nation on television, and the host of the McNeese Coaches Show, which can be heard every Wednesday right here on The Game, our good friend, Jimmy G from LC himself, the great Gazzolo, Jim Gazzolo, now joins us here on RP3 and Company. Jim, how are you, bud? Bah humbug. Bah humbug. Well, there you go. That's a good way to start off the final hour. Grumpy Jim. <laughs> Uh, no, I am I am fine, Raymond. I just like to play with Raymond there. That's all. So, I want to start off with something that could be a grumpy topic. Uh, the McNeese Cowboys baseball team 
went on the road and took on the fighting CVSs who entered the weekend with a whopping 3-20 and overall record on the season. And they promptly dropped two of three to Houston Christian University, formerly Houston Baptist. It's the second Southland Conference series in three weeks that they've dropped. They are currently 18 and 10 overall, but two and four in SLC play near the bottom of the standings. Is there cause for concern about Justin Hill's team? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's cause for concern. You lose two to Houston Christian, it isn't a parade. <laughs> They're not throwing you a parade. Um, yeah, there, there's uh, there's some pitching issues outside of Grant Rogers. Uh, I wrote today they're seven and zero with Rogers starting, and they're eleven and ten without him, and that is telling. Obviously, he can't pitch every game, and they knew they were going to have some pitching issues entering the season. Right, this is nothing new, based on what they lost. So, is it just not finding the right combination of guys, or is it just simply a fact of maybe they just don't have enough arms? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think uh, that they have been exposed as far as their two and three starters, especially throwing strikes. They've walked 28 batters in the six conference games. 27 of them have been walked by others than Rodgers. Oh. Uh, so that's those are the numbers that are reality. Um, it, it's, uh, it's concerning because they've now – been able to get enough innings out of the starters to find out if they have a bridge. They have a Friday night that works when they go from Rogers to Ty Abraham. But I, I'm I would be concerned right now as to what else they have now. Bryson Huggins is expected back sometime in April, and that would be your number two starter who is very good if he's healthy. Um, but you're you're still looking at a team that is not fully complete yet, and. Uh, the, the problem is that they don't they don't get enough swings and misses when they walk people. I mean, they lost a game on Sunday, twelve to ten. So obviously they can hit, right? They have a lineup, yeah. and I know it's been inconsistent at times, but they have some record-setting program record-setting and Southland Conference record-setting bats in that lineup. If they can't figure out who's going to be the number two or the number three pitcher. It sure is going to feels like it could be a wasted season, especially the talent they have in the lineup. Yeah, I mean that, that's you score twenty seven runs against Houston Christian, you should win a series, and they didn't. Uh, and they were never ahead in either the, the the last two games after winning the first one fifteen to five, and Rogers threw six innings of shutout ball. There is there is real concern as far as. I can tell as to who's going to be the rest of the rest of your weekend once you get past Grant Rogers. Now the interesting thing is Justin Hill yesterday said, "I know who's going to throw. I don't know when they're going to throw," um, which I think is a little disconcerting if I were setting up my rotation. How do they fix it, Jim? Based on the guys that you've seen them put on the mound, is there anyone? that looks like a strong candidate, they can at least be the number two guy, the Saturday guy. Because if they can just find one more guy, then you can do by committee for the third game and still 
have yeah. a great chance to take two out of three and win the series? Um, I, I would say Derek Cherry is probably the likely candidate. His only issue really has been throwing strikes. Uh, he started 3-0 and and looked very good. Um, they have a kid named Morrow who has been good in the midweeks for the most part. He may have to step up. Uh, but I, I, unless if, if, if Hudgens comes back, then they've got a rotation they can set up. If he doesn't come back and come back where he can give them five, six quality innings as a number two starter, I, I think they're patchwork the, the second half of every uh, every weekend. We're talking with Jim Gazzolo of the Lake Charles American Press. He's also the host of Poke Nation and the McNeese Coaches Show. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. All right, tell us a little bit about this weekend's matchup, the holiday weekend. Obviously, they'll play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so they will not be playing on Easter Sunday. Texas A&M Corpus Christi comes to town. Uh, they are right now the worst team in the Southland Conference at 13-16 and 16 overall and 1-2 and two in conference play. This should be a kind of a get-back-right type of weekend for the Cowboys. Is that what you're expecting? Uh, it better be. <laughs> How's that? It better be. This is a weekend. You can't, in a 24-week season, which is eight weekends, you can't start losing three of uh, your first three-weekend series and expect to make a deep run. So this has to be a weekend series where they do get right. Uh a little hard to judge um, because they've only played one weekend series. So Houston Christian was one and two coming into the weekend series last weekend. So uh, it, it'll be an interesting thing to see if they can get their pitching right. Uh, he said he's going to start Rogers right now on Thursday, um, which means uh, the rest of the weekend is interesting. And there's a lot of rain in the forecast. So, He's going to have to make some decisions on some pitchers and when he wants to take that chance on a rain out and that. So we're going to see. There may be some movement of the schedule, I've been told. Movement of the schedule. Everything is fluid. It's fluid. fluid. It's a fluid It's a fluid town. It's a, flu- <laughs> it's a fluid situation in a fluid town. Let's switch over to the softball program. They're 26-10 and 10 now overall, but they are a perfect 9-0 and 0 in Southland Conference play. And... They got a good matchup today. Uh, both them and the Louisiana Raging Cajuns have the same exact record, and they're facing yeah. off tonight. They're at Joe Miller Field at Cowgirl Diamond in Lake Chuck. First pitch scheduled for 6 o'clock. Uh, what do we make of yet another matchup between the Raging Cajuns and the Cowgirls? I know Coach Landrino would like to uh, actually score a win here in the final matchup between these two area programs. Yeah, I think that that's the, the thing that's always struck me about softball here is they have the ability to play somebody really good in the weekday and also keep their focus against Southland competition on the weekend. So I, I think that they do rise to play well. They've just got to get some wins against these kind of quality teams, and that's always been the judgment of where the program is now they've done a couple they've got a couple of wins against top 25 this year i think he'd like to see that continue especially when it comes to the offense the offense is more of a running offense than power offense this year and he thinks he's deeper at pitching than ever before i think he'd like to carry that into and, and get some results 
Um, I expect it to be a fairly tight game, as it always is. Last year, I think it went 12 innings here before McNeese won. So I, I would expect it to be a fairly tight, fairly competitive, and uh, as always, interesting game when they meet up. <laughs> now, you expect it to be different than the previous two outings this season, which the Cajuns won 7-1 to and 6-2? to Yeah, I do. I think uh, I think McNeese has the ability to keep it closer, um, mainly because I think they find, kind of found their groove a little bit uh, offensively. They, they're not looking for big innings. They stole 98 bases, which puts them in the top seven in the country. Um, at, that They've kind of found the way to manufacture some runs. So I think they'll score, I, I'd say four runs, four or five, will be maybe a 4-3 game or a 5-4 game. But I, what do I know? My, I had nobody in the final four, so what do I know? <laughs> Well, you and everyone else didn't have anybody in the Final Four. So I think you're good there. And then after this midweek uh, matchup against the Raging Cajuns, they'll be at home as well for the holiday weekend, and they'll welcome on yeah. n- uh, welcome in rather Northwestern State. The Demons are pretty good, 18-15 and 15 overall, yeah. but only 5-4 and four in the Southland Conference, currently fourth in the standings. Uh, how big is this weekend series? And – for the Cal girls to go ahead and win their third, um, I'm sorry, their fourth straight weekend Southland Conference Series. Well, I think that they're just they're putting distance between them and everybody else when they win these things because they're not winning; they're sweeping, and that's 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 a big difference because I, I think winning two out of three would be huge this weekend. Uh, the Lady Demons always play them pretty well, especially down here. So I think. Um, if they could win, if they win, if they sweep this, it's basically over because they're twelve and zero, uh, and they will have ended it halfway through almost. But um, I think winning two out of three would kind of give them the distance and kind of set up that uh, they could start looking forward to. But I want one thing about them is I want to I want to say this is they've always been pretty good at being able to stay focused once they've wrapped up the conference early. Um, but that that's. I don't. This team is a little different. It's a little deeper in the pitching staff, um, but the personalities are a little different this year. There's not one big personality like they've had in the past. It's a lot of little personalities that have kind of taken ownership of the program, and still a very young team. We'll get you out of here with this, Jim. Spring football. Oh, I, I got nowhere to go, man. <laughs> <laughs> spring football's in uh, in full effect, and obviously we're getting towards the the tail end of the spring football season for our colleges. Uh, what's the latest that you can tell us and your big takeaways from what you're seeing from Gary Golf? Well, they had their spring game, and uh, what we saw was an actual offense, which is something you and I did not see last year. That, that is uh, true. We we, we, we we have not seen high-powered offenses from the Cowboys uh, since before the Hurricanes. So it's it's no. been a while. Uh, defensively, they look very good. Offensively, they have two guys that can throw the football, which is something we didn't have. We haven't had for a long, long time. We even found a guy, Jalen Johnson, who can catch a football. Now they want to find more, um, and they're still looking. But – the one thing that would strike me is depth. They're very fast by comparison. And the ironic thing is Gary Goff wants to throw the football. He has five good running backs. D'Angelo Durham has come back from injury. He went 74 yards on a swing pass and looked faster than he did last year. 
Um, Josh Parker looked better. Uh, the kid Ham, the, the um, transfer Ham, looked really good. So what, what I saw last yesterday or Saturday was something we didn't see last year, which was a diversified offense that actually had checkdowns through the backs, couple of tight end catches. <laughs> and tight end catches. What is that? The football. Tight end hey, catches. Two, I think two or three tight. Yeah, I think we had four tight end catches actually. Oh, look at all right, bud. So, all right. What you got? Hey, before I let you go, what you got on store for the Meatnees Coaches Show this week? Which, by the way, you can listen to live right on the game 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, starting at six o'clock on Wednesdays. Well, that's why you're the professional segue man because it's Gary Goff, football coach of Meatnees State. Oh, I didn't. I had no idea. It just happened that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you get huge dollars. Oh, that once again, fabrication of the truth. Jim, appreciate your time, my friend. Enjoy the game tonight, bud. We'll talk to you later. All right. Good to see you back in town, man. Thank you, bud. <laughs> this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are two types of sports reporters. Those who are respected for their ability at building relationships with coaches and players. And here's our game plan. Then there are those whose method of reporting is getting hammered with a college football team and Pat O's. We're going streaking! We'll let you guess which one RP3 is. Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to this Tuesday edition of RP3 and Company right here on the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Joining us now here inside the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette to talk Festival International is our friend from Festival International, Carly Viator, and she brought herself a friend, Miss Angelique Guillory with LUS Fiber. Of course, they're one of the presenting sponsors, and they are the fine folks that provide all that great Wi-Fi that you will be using during Festival so make sure you say thank you to them. Good morning, ladies. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having us. Appreciate you being here. Okay, when we talked to you last time, Carly, we made sure it was an emphasis to tell the folks about if they wanted to sign up for the 5K, that time was running out, spots were filling up. Where do we stand now with the 5K for festival? Well, the emphasis worked because we totally sold out of our 5K, which is awesome. And thank you to everyone that signed up to run with us this year. Well, that is amazing news because I know there's a ton of buzz around the 5K. Now, that's taken care of. Let's talk a little bit about the music, the lineup. We only kind of briefly touched on it the last time you stopped by. What can you tell us about this year's Festival International musical lineups? 
So we always start off on the Wednesday of festival with just one stage, which is the Fado Doe stage on Jefferson. And that night's about our local music, celebrating our local culture. So you can come out and catch some fine Zydeco on the Wednesday. And uh, we'll have Chubby Carrier, and we'll also have Chris Ardwan, which are two of the best Zydeco musicians in town for sure. And then um, Thursday is our big bicentennial celebration. So Lafayette Parish has been around for 200 years now which is amazing. So for that celebration, um, we're going to be having Lauren Daigle, which is a really big deal. Um, She's from Lafayette, and she's grown to be an international superstar. So she's going to be our big highlight on the Thursday. So be sure to come out and check that out and celebrate with us. Um, Friday, we have Angelique Kijo, which is one of our biggest headliners for this year as well. And um, she's a four-time Grammy winner. Be sure to check her out. She's one of the biggest stars out of Africa. And I'm personally maybe most excited about Angelique Kijo. And then um, we also have Tank and the Bangas coming in on Saturday at the main stage. Sunday, we have Dub Inc. out of France, which is a really awesome, awesome reggae band. And then we also added the Whalers recently to our lineup. So all kinds of exciting stuff from all around the world. You know, what what always stands out to me about what you guys do with festival, in particular with the music, is you make it a, a global event with global music from all different parts of the world. But the other part of that is you could just stay there. But you guys make sure that there's a local emphasis as well, where local stars, whether it's Cajun music, whether it's Zydeco, it doesn't matter. There's always an emphasis to incorporate Acadiana and Southwest Louisiana into the show. And that's something that always stands out about when you guys do this lineup as well. Yes, exactly. Festival was actually founded back in the 80s. And a big part, you know, other than celebrating international music and bringing the world to Lafayette is sharing what is special here in Acadiana and in Louisiana in general with the world. So we're giving these artists the platform to show what we got here. And, you know, that attracts a lot of tourists and is just amazing for our whole community in general. And, yeah, there's all kinds of great Louisiana acts to catch this year. Everything from Cajun to Zydeco to folk music to Lauren Daigle to Tank and the Bangas. Um, just all kinds of great Louisiana acts. A tremendous musical lineup that features some high-profile acts from the state of Louisiana as well as from around the world. Music is only part of what you guys do with Festival International. What are some of the other things, specifically some of the other things that maybe the folks aren't aware of that have never been, Carly, that it makes festivals so great that they can check out and experience and get to remember for years to come? So I always say the secret is there's a trio to festival, to the full experience, and that is the music, the food, and the art. Um, We take pride in curating all of those areas to be top-notch. So be sure to go support some of our local and other Louisiana uh, food vendors that have flavors from around the world and local, you know, just the same as our music. And then also we have an open-air art market that has um, artwork from around the world as well as a bunch of local artisans. So don't miss this opportunity to experience the world all in one week by hitting up the music, the food, and the art. All right, let's take a moment to bring on Angelique Guillory. She is with LUS Fiber. Once again, they are one of the big presenting sponsors for Festival International, and they are the fine folks that provide the Wi-Fi that all of us so desperately need to use during <laughs> festival. And uh, good morning and uh, welcome. And just how excited are 
you guys with LUS Fiber once again being a presenting sponsor and being part of what Festival International means to the local community and what it means to all of Southwest Louisiana? Well, we've been a community partner with the Festival International for over 10 years, and I just want to let everyone know that it's our honor and privilege to be able to connect people to their friends, their loved ones, and family so that they can share this unique experience during festival. And um, we are so excited to have the world like Carly said, in one place for a week and be able to provide the technology in order to connect people to their friends, family, and loved ones and, again, share their unique experiences during Festival International. You know, with such a strong concentration of people in the community downtown for festival, I I would would assume that presents somewhat of a challenge for you guys at LUS Fiber. How much of an undertaking is that, and uh, how much pride do you take that you guys are able to kind of achieve that goal and rise to the occasion every single year? I mean, like I said, we've been a community partner for over 10 years. So any kind of kinks along the way, it's sort of like building your own infrastructure for your own world, has come to pass. So we have pretty much experienced all of the technical problems that one can. We have also um, upgraded to, uh, instead of carrying cash at the festival, we are now doing RFID bracelets. Sponsored by Iberia Bank. Uh, yes. And that what it is is instead of carrying cash, you can upload your money to this bracelet and be cash-free during the festival. So it's something that's, like, more convenient because of the technology. So we're very honored and privileged to be part of this experience because a lot of the people from around the world will be exposed to other cultures, food, artisans, because of the technology we're providing. I'll wrap it up with this. Obviously, uh, LUS is, is part of this and has been a proud sponsor for so long. But per, on a personal level, what's the thing that you look forward to most of all? It could be a big thing or it could be something small when festival comes around. I mean, for me, um, all big things are in the small things. And other than the food and music and art that's going to be available, it's for me to actually witness the people at festival having the experience like that's so special to me because certain things that you'd never think of like um you know there's this band from korea adg7 who are going to be part of the festival i've never heard of them before i can't wait to go and experience that because it touches your life in a certain way so those are the things the music wonderful um the whalers being there that's a blessing it's a wonderful thing but for me it's to see the families exposing their children to these unique experiences and for us to share our culture with others that's also something that we always wanted to do and this is the platform by which we can do it so that's what i look forward to every year Ladies, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning to stop by to talk about Festival International. Carly, once again, I ask you this every time we talk, so this should become old hat for you. Where can people go to get more information about Festival International? Head over to festivalinternational.org, and actually our mobile app comes out this week, so you'll be able to use that to look at the schedule, to volunteer, check out the merch, and all things festival. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. 
Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Ah, the New Orleans Pelicans find themselves in a good spot as the regular season wraps up this week. Holiday weekend coming up. Friday, they'll be at home for the final regular season home game inside the Smoothie King Center. And then they'll have to close it out at Minnesota. And to talk more about the New Orleans Pelicans and how they've kind of turned things around here late in the season. As a man who's not concerned about a verified blue check mark. Our good friend, Ollie Cassell. Ollie, good morning, bud. How are you? I'm doing great because I don't have to come in here with loads of sunshine for you. Pelicans are taking care of that for me. (laughs) They're actually taking care of it for you. A big reason why they've played so well, winning seven of their last three, including back-to-back games, has been the phenomenal play from Brandon Ingram. What happened with B.I.? But why all of a sudden did he just a switch turn on and he just started taking over games? Yeah, Brandon looks like a completely different player since, remember, he sprained an ankle um, about a month after he had returned from his toe injury, missed a couple of games, and ever since then, he's become all-NBA Brandon. According to Willie and B.I., as best as we can tell, is he was just given a bigger green light and that Willie had asked him to facilitate more. And I'll tell you what, what a great decision, right? I mean, Brandon looks like a legitimate point guard out there. Over the last nine games, he's averaging over eight assists. But here's the one that gets me. Nobody since that first loss to Houston has assisted more three-pointers in the league than Brandon. He's averaging five of his those eight assists, Raymond. They are two three-point shooters, right? So that's 15 points right there. So you add that to the 30 points he's given you on great efficiency, right? The turnovers have disappeared largely. I don't. I can't name a player that's playing better basketball than Bi right now. They've also Valachunas has been far more effective as well during this stretch, and they they seem to be just so much more kind of at ease than they have been in 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 months past. Now they in their last was it four games, five games rather. They beat a Clippers team that's banged up. They beat a Portland team that has decided to, you know, call it in. They lose to Golden State, and they looked good against Golden State for a while until they inexplicably looked just terrible down the stretch. They beat a Nuggets team without the two-time league MVP, and they beat a Clippers team, once again, that's minus some guys. Obviously, they needed to win these games to, to make a push that they're making, Ollie. But with four games left against Sacramento, Memphis, New York, and Minnesota, those are all going to be quality opponents. Do you still feel as confident of them being able to avoid the play-in tournament or at least get a high seed in the play-in tournament? I think the expectation is they're going to finish no worse to me than seven or eight. So, yeah, that would fall in the play-in tournament, right? But that would be meaning you'd have to win one or two games. So that's a much better scenario than they faced last season, right? Having to win two just to get in the playoffs. But there's still a great chance to get five or six, I feel. 
And a lot of it will be decided, I think, um, in that game tomorrow between the Lakers and the Clippers. If, if you want to see the Pels end up five or six, you're kind of rooting for the Clippers because the Lakers pretty much have a lot of tiebreakers, right, over the Pelicans in terms of where one-on-one they do, right, individually. But also if there was, say, to be a three-way tie or more, the Lakers would come up on top of the Pelicans as to where in all these other scenarios they would be ahead of, in most of them, against ahead of the Clippers and the Warriors, right? So it's very interesting to me because I think a lot of these teams are going to finish out 4-0, 3-1 because the competition just isn't going to be given much darn over this last week because they don't have that much to play for, right? Because seedings have been determined or certain opponents are already out. But to your point about a lot of teams that the Pels have played have been banged up, Raymond, look, don't forget, Pelicans have been without Zion. They've been without now Jose Alvarado for a good bit. Those are two very key guys, I feel like, that provide the Pelicans a lot of oomph that they can't really get from other guys on the roster. But with B.I. now playing, like honestly, like an MVP candidate, it's allowed for everybody else to fall into their natural roles. So when you don't go ignoring Valanchunas and you keep McCollum in kind of that secondary role where you know he's catching in the weak side and he's got the open shots or he's got a more open lane, he's not facing two defenders, he's so much better. Same thing with Trey. Trey has never played basketball this well. He's not just shooting the ball well. He's not really even just driving it. It's everything else he's doing. He's now reading the game, making right decisions, whether it comes to passing, defense. I think he's playing like a guy that can help you win some games, possibly even in the playoffs. So you combine now with Herb, right? Let's give a shout-out to Herb. He's shooting over 50% from three since the start of March, and his defense is always stellar. This Pelicans team is is as tough as anybody. So this remaining schedule looks tough, but I expect them to go at least two and two. And I think in my heart, I think they'll go three and one. I think they're locked up into the playing tournament because I think a game and a half on the Timberwolves and then two and a half games up on Oklahoma City. I, I think they're set here with the final four games of the season. And I think you're right. I think they're going to be probably seven and eight, and I anticipate them going two and two. But my question to you is this. They built up so much good momentum, and really they they can only control what they can control. They they can't control what happens between the Clippers and the Lakers. So how important is it for them to keep this hot streak going and maybe go three and one instead of two and two heading into the play-in tournament? How key is that for them? I think it's everything. I mean, I hope they go 4-0 because then you really have a great chance of 5 or 6. And here's the thing. Playing tournament starts April 11th. I think the playoffs was the 15th or the 16th. Those extra days of rest are huge for one reason only, Zion Williamson. There's talk that he could still return at the end of this sometime over these next four games, likely starting, of course, against the Knicks. From what I've seen and heard, there's no way he could return and say, jump right into a 30-minute role, right? A starter's role. But if he was willing to come off the bench, then maybe. And therefore, that would allow, right, first you get acclimated to the teammates playing basketball. Remember how slow he was starting out of the gates at the start of this year? And also give him more rest so that by the time the actual playoffs roll around and you don't have to worry about getting there, Zion's a lot healthier and as we know, this team is a lot more formidable when you've got a Zion that's, you know, even at 90% compared to not having him at all. The two next opponents they have, Sacramento and Memphis, right? 
those are two teams that still have plenty to play for this last week because they're jockeying for position to be either the two or the three seed. Now, maybe it's not that big of a deal to them. I don't know, but definitely tonight, I'd expect Sacramento to to be laser-focused, and I would expect Memphis, especially with incorporating Ja back into the mix, and they seem to have a bit of a you know, a chippiness with New Orleans as it is. Do you expect to see full full court efforts, so to speak, in the next two games at least? I definitely do against Sacramento. What will be curious, Raymond, is if the Pelicans beat Sac and Memphis wins, then I think they've got every, – everything's locked up then, right, for them both in the seedings for Memphis beat two, Correct. Sacramento three. Right? So that, that, that would lead me to believe that maybe Memphis wouldn't give it their all – Especially considering, I know a lot of coaches buy into the fact that when you, you you know kind of or you think you've got a playoff opponent in mind that you're going to be playing, well, there's a good chance that the Pelicans could face the Grizzlies, right? I mean, if they were to end up in that playing tournament but lock up the seventh seed, guess who they'd be playing? Memphis. So I know a lot of, like I said, coaches don't like to show their hands. So I could see, honestly, they kind of take a step back, especially, like I said, if the Pels beat the Kings tonight. So... I don't know. You know that the Tibbs or Tibbs with the Knicks is not going to give in, relinquish on Friday. So oh, I no, think the only no. opening in hope for is honestly Memphis, right? Maybe laying back, throttling down a little bit. Otherwise, no. It's going to be a tough road for the Pels. And Minnesota, you know, they're four and six in their last 10. So they're going to be trying to hang on to get into the play in tournament. Now, maybe that last game, it, it may be already decided that they may be already in, but that would require. Uh, the Mavericks to continue their great tanking job that has been magnificent. Um, everywhere Kyrie Irving goes, he makes the team worse. That's amazing how that works out. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll wrap it up with this. When we're talking next week, bud, next Tuesday morning, starting at 8.30, where do you believe the Pelicans will have fallen into the playoff picture? I think they're going to be in that playing tournament probably at seven. I think the Lakers will jump ahead of them, and I, I'm expecting the Warriors to stay there too. So the Clippers slide in, and guess what? Going to be playing the Clippers once more in a play-in game. So hopefully they'll be ready for that one. Ollie, appreciate your time as always, brother. Enjoy your holiday week, and enjoy uh, watching the Pels uh, you know, keep ascending here towards the tail end of the season, bud. Absolutely. Hasn't this been a nice, pleasant surprise, right? Two weeks ago, we thought that done and buried, but they've made a heck of a run here at the end of the stretch. And now, if they get Zion back, I'll tell you what, Raymond, they could go further than they did last year. It's exciting. I would really like a season for the Pelicans not to be an absolute roller coaster, but I, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah, come just... on. We got to take baby steps here. You can't, can't get all the way up to, right? No roller coasters with this team, this franchise. No way. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Yep. Take care, bud. This is RP3 and Company on the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Do you think RP3 is the only nickname Ray has? Think again. There was Little Vaynant. There was Little Foot, Little Bubba. There was LD, which stood for Little Dufo. There was Ray Dog. There was Ray Diggity Dog. There was Fish. There was Fish Face. There was RP3. There was even Ramundo from El Segundo. 
Back to the host with more nicknames than he knows what to do with. RP3, right here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, I want to take a moment to thank our guest, Brett Chancey of the Locked On Astros podcast, Jim Gazzolo from the Lake Charles American Press and the Meanies Coaches Show, Carly Viator with Festival International, and Ali Cassell, editor-in-chief of the Bird Rights. Hey, here's some in- interesting information. We talked a little bit about the Women's National Championship game. 9.9 million viewers is the most-watched ESPN Plus broadcast of all time. Uh, obviously, a, a, a great tournament for the women's game. That number, more people watched the Women's National Championship game than they did the Orange Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the 2021 NBA Finals, any Stanley Cup final game since 1973, and each recent All-Star game. That's courtesy of our friend Chris Vanini of The Athletic. I think there may be an audience for women's basketball. Just going to throw that out there. Poll question of the day. Is UConn a blue blood in men's basketball? We've had a good discussion about this both on and off the air. And look, the, the thing with UConn is they've won five titles since 1999, and I argue they're one of the modern blue bloods because the game has changed. They also have seasons where they don't even make the NCAA tournament. But I think this is what you're going to see now. The parity in the men's side of college basketball, the NCAA transfer portal, you're going to see teams, look, North Carolina went to the title game last year and was the number one preseason ranked team in the country. They didn't make the tournament. There's so much parity on the men's side in particular that what we think of blue bloods of being in the NCAA tournament every year, making a run to the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight and the Final Four, I don't think it's going to be the case moving forward. I think you're going to see what UConn has done is going to be the new template for the how we view teams as blue bloods. I think the old way of doing it, I don't think is going to be there anymore because the game has changed so drastically with the transfer portal, with NIL and one and duns. 63% of you, though, say yes, they're a blue blood. 31% say no, and 6% of you go, what's a blue blood? <laughs> Thanks to all who voted and to all of you who left your comments on Facebook and Twitter. We appreciate you making us part of your morning commute for work or school. For the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Isolo, I'm Raymond Pars III, better known as RP3. We'll do it all again tomorrow, 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foote in Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.